So I'm sitting here Monday, November 13th. By the way, hey, what's up? Hello, Senator from Reality Podcast. It's Alex Kapitko here. Hope your day is going well. It's Monday. The weather's cold. This is that time of year where I don't know how I feel about it because Thanksgiving's an okay holiday. Not my favorite, not my least favorite. But also the cool leaves are all slowly falling off the trees if they haven't yet. It's dark out. I could continue, but you guys know my thoughts on all of that. But what I will say is, boy, I was listening to uh, Sarah Longwell's Focus Group podcast about a few minutes before I started recording this. Again, she's a bulwark editor, um, works in in pro uh, pro democracy movements, and she's really worried. And she had Elena Godfrey from the Atlantic on there, and they were you know listening to interviews from people that were in her focus groups. And they were all talking about how they know Trump is pro-choice, but they know he elected the judges that, you know, overturned the Roe v. Wade decision. And there seems to be a fear amongst Democrats and people that don't want Trump to be reelected that he is going to take a moderate approach on abortion. Of course, he might not, but a lot of Democrats are worried that he goes out and says, you know what, a 20-week ban, a 22-week ban, right when viability is somewhat registered, that's where we put the limit. And boy, guys, if Trump went down that road, it would change things, I think, for a lot. Because what I find is that there's a lot of black and white issues in our politics right now that are just divided among party lines. But if you watch what happened in Kansas last year or what's going on in Ohio after that vote last week that enshrined abortion into its state constitution, it seems like voters, especially women voters, even if they're conservative voters— have pretty nuanced opinions on abortion. And if Trump went out and also had a more nuanced opinion on abortion, that could really do Democrats a lot of bad. Because obviously you have Ron DeSantis, six-week ban. Mike Pence was very pro that. Tim Scott. It's like Nikki Haley and Donald Trump seem to be the two in the party that understand that it's a nuanced issue. Of course, I don't think to Trump it's nuanced. It's just that he's probably paid for abortions over the years. It doesn't seem to be much of a mystery to me at this point. But anyways, what I mean is that abortion is complicated, and if Trump can get ahead of the Democrats on a platform about that, I think it could be problematic. So anyways, that's actually not what we're talking about today, though. I just wanted to share those thoughts because I was just thinking about it as I listened to this. Uh, What we are going to talk about today is quite a few things, kind of dark, like how is genocide defined? And I'm going to argue that I don't think what Israel is doing is genocide in Gaza, based on kind of the vague United Nations terms. I also want to talk about the chaos in the House. They're trying to halt another government shutdown. Speaker Johnson, I don't know. (laughs) But first, we're going to do something a little bit different, is I want to play the four minutes that I found kind of interesting in the Bill Maher-Ted Cruz segment of Bill Maher's Real Time that aired, what, last Friday? And I'm going to kind of go through it and break down some things because, first and foremost, I was surprised that Ted Cruz actually came on the show. He did, so I guess I'll give him kudos there. But the kudos end there because Ted Cruz, for a guy who talks about going to Harvard all the time, for a guy who claims to be a constitutional expert, he is good at just twisting logic into so many different pretzels and just gaslighting Bill Maher's audience about it. It was kind of irritating. Also, a side note before I get this going, because we don't have video going right now. Maybe I'll get back to video. I I know a year ago we did the video on YouTube, too. Maybe I'll get back to that. But anyways, 
Ted Cruz is wearing a purple suit, and I was telling my uncle who I was watching this episode with, I was like, it seems like ever since Ted Cruz sold his soul to Trump, by the way, the guy that called his wife fat, the guy that said his dad was involved in the Kennedy assassination, the guy who attacked Ted Cruz's looks and character, Ted Cruz obviously bent the knee eventually, and it seems like ever since he bent the knee, he's just gone more MAGA, but his looks have kind of just collapsed, and I'm not just trying to be mean But it's like Ted Cruz used to be kind of a clean-cut, respectable-looking guy, whether you liked his politics or not. But, you know, he's he's screaming about he wants to drink more than two beers a week, doing doing conferences where he's drinking beers, wearing purple suits. He has this weird beard going on. He just looks unwell. And I wonder if that's the cost of selling your soul to something you don't believe in, is that it does wear it, or yeah, it does weigh on you. And it does seem like things are weighing on Ted Cruz, even if he pretends that everything's all hunky-dory, because he doesn't look well to me. And maybe that's what happens when you, you know, go to Cancun during a, a mer- like an energy crisis in Texas. You try to overturn the 2020 election. I could go on and on. But anyways, let's listen to this. I think Bill Maher does a decent job of pushing back on him, but then it gets cut off. But anyways, I think this really shows the problem in the Republican Party. And we have to remember, Ted Cruz is a senator. So typically senators, I find, are a little bit more pragmatic. But not in this case. Ted Cruz just, he highlights the issues when Republicans are pressed on, is Biden the president? And did he actually win the 2020 election? Look, we're going to, we're having such a good time, but... Now you're going to have to answer for Sonny on the causeway. Okay. So. By the way, before we keep going, the reason why he's like, we've been having fun is because for the first part of their conversation, whatever you want to call it, they're talking about woke. And as we know, Bill Maher definitely overlaps more with the right. And they're talking about some interesting stuff about how settler colonialism and the oppression Olympics, oppressor versus oppressor, isn't a great ideology for everything, which I agreed with. But now Bill's like, all right, Mr. Purple Suit, Ted, we're, we're going. Um, I'm just saying, because stand up, you're one of 11 senators mm-hmm. who voted not to certify the last election. Okay, one of 11. Do you think Biden didn't win? But Biden is clearly the president. Well, that's not the question. Or the- and, and that's actually here, I'll let it play. <laughs> Do you think he won? Was it a fair election? No, those are very different questions. Okay. Okay. So, so the the Republicans have all done this except for a few, like the ones that got scared out of office, like Liz Cheney and Kinzinger. You guys know the crew. A lot of Republicans have been pressed in the last year. Did Biden win the election? They always say, "Well, Biden is the president." It's a cop out answer. The catch they're trying to get them in is not, "Is Biden the president?" Everyone with eyes knows that Biden's the president. The problem is a lot of people don't think Biden's the legitimate president. And Bill's good to ask Ted Cruz this because Ted Cruz is one of the main people that really instilled this this view inside of the Republican Party because he's, like Bill said, one of the 11 senators that was actually involved in this. Did he win and is he the president? Yes. Was it fair? Look, there were lots of things that were unfair about the last election. But it's been combed over more than any election ever, even by the people on your side. And they say it's not. This is from your book. You say, Democrats, whose capacity for shamelessness never ceases to astound me, were no longer willing to play by the rules of democracy. Now, I know you're funny now, but is that a joke? <laughs> the Democrats don't want to play by the rules so, of what, democracy? What was the context before and after that? I'm sorry, the one sentence I'm not remembering... 
Uh, well, that, I, don't, I don't know, but you wrote that. The, the I, Democrats okay. are no longer willing to play by the rules of democracy. I wanted to read it because I feel like it's the exact opposite right, right, of so, what I think, which is that the Republicans, including you, January 6th, etc., are the ones who are no longer willing to play by the rules of democracy. It seems like... Wait, wait. It seems like your idea has switched in the Republican Party to elections only count if we win. And then we will endlessly litigate them, even though your own, it was laughed out of court, like 60 different courts. I mean, all we have, the, the secretaries of state, even the Republican ones, everybody said your Trump's own election people said it was the one of the most fair, well. And, and this is the one that always gets to me personally, is that <laughs> this election has been under a microscope for what? We're almost 2024. So for going on three years and the like the cases have been laughed down. The evidence just hasn't been there. The mules movie, I forget the number. You know, I forget the number from the Dinesh D'Souza movie, but either way, it's insane now to still say there was a lot of malfeasance and fraud when it just doesn't seem to be the case. Elections ever. Why won't you let it go? So, Bill, you're the one that's not letting it go. You're the one that's asking about it. But, but let me be clear about something. I'm asking about your history. Uh, listen, listen, I believe passionately in democracy. And, and I also believe voter fraud is a real and persistent problem. And it's weird that Democrats it's have not. taken the view. It's been studied. Okay, so you don't think it is. But you know what? I have never once seen you or, or any other host ask Hillary Clinton why she said in 2016 that Donald Trump was an illegitimate president. I've never seen... You asked Democrats why they objected to the presidential certification in 2001. That was George W. Bush. Okay. In 2005, that was George W. Bush. And in 2016, that was Donald Trump. And so I don't think we should be okay, they, have they, a double standard here. Uh, okay. Well, there is a double standard because there's two different things going on. One is a remonstration, a mild protestation of something. They did, Al Gore was the head of the Senate at the time. He had to pass the baton in an election. He knew he won and his he, he knew and, he won. and the Wait, other are candidates you an election denier you just said al gore won that election well he okay he did not win i mean, it. He won, i'm your sorry you're right you're right I'm, I'm this one i mean i guess under ted cruz's logic it's like you know bill maher admits that bush was president but then bill maher is like well there were questions about the election i think ted cruz is saying gotcha we think the same thing about the 2020 election which in some ways is fair but also the thing is I don't know. It's 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 interesting to me that that election did seem to be much more questionable than this one, especially because the Supreme Court actually had to get involved. The president's brother was the governor of the state. In this one, there was no such scrutiny from the courts or anything like that. So I, I just do think it's somewhat apples to oranges, or dare we say, like dare we say, like mangoes to oranges. So you won the popular vote. But, but that's not yes, actually what Yes, I understand. I president. understand. But the other candidate's brother stopped the count. Okay, or, that's, that or, is, that's not accurate. The Supreme Court stopped the count. His own brother ran that election in His Florida. His brother which was, was the where... governor of Florida. You know, they counted okay, the votes. Okay, well, oh, hold on, hold on a second. I mean, facts matter. They counted the votes four times in Florida. Okay. George W. Bush won all four times. I was part of the legal team litigating the, that case. So I was, I was intimately involved in Bush versus Gore. Bigger, Every time they counted the votes, Bush won. The bigger point is that Al Gore took one for the team. He came out and said, okay, you know, this was a really fucked up election, but this is America. 
The jewel in our crown is that we pass power peacefully, and I'm not going to be the first guy not to do that. Nixon let it go in yeah. 1960. That could have been a, a I, I agree. screwy election. And Hillary came out in her goddamn purple suit. <laughs> so she did it. And, and let's remember, Ted Cruz is wearing a purple suit. Before the sun rose, she did it. Before the cock crowed three times, she came out and said, Trump is the president. And this is one thing that always pisses me off, too, is like you hear Fox and whoever else, Fox and Friends, <laughs> they, they're always like, well, Hillary didn't accept the defeat. Hillary claimed the election was stolen. Sure, we can talk about how MSNBC and news networks went down the Russia collusion stuff. There was, the, the Mueller report did find collusion. It just wasn't enough to actually get Trump in trouble. But Hillary did come out and congratulate Trump and say she lost. Trump still hasn't, in public, admitted that Biden is president. There's a difference there. But this cognitive dissonance, this siloization of our politics, just, I think it shows why Ted Cruz looks like shit these days. I'm sorry, but I had to say it. That's what you guys will not do. Joe Biden is the president. What do you mean we won't do it? I'm fighting him every day, and he's screwing up the country and the world. So I'm quite aware Joe Biden's the president. I wish he wasn't, but it's not lost on me who it is that caused a war in Europe with Ukraine that, that, that gave $100 billion to Iran and the terrorists Wait, he attacking caused Israel. the war in Ukraine? Yes, do you want to know how? No, but next... Anyways, he says no, but next time, and you guys will be surprised to hear that in overtime, Ted Cruz blames Joe Biden, and that somewhat debunked theory about how it was Biden freeing up those funds, the Biden administration freeing up those funds um, after the American hostages were released... If you think that that's why Israel and Palestine is happening is because of Biden, maybe he should go back to Harvard and take some continuing education classes on it because I don't think Biden started this, guys. Call me crazy. Call me crazy. Anyways, I want to get to the House of Representatives, led by Mike Johnson, who, by the way, him and his son monitor each other's online history, porn activity. You can take that however you want. Brings up a lot of questions about why the Speaker of the House and his 17-year-old son monitor each other's internet browsing history. That's a whole other story for another time. But as I've talked about continuously for the last couple months, we are approaching another government shutdown. Because the CR, or continuing resolution, that McCarthy agreed on with Democrats and obviously ended with him going bye-bye, well, it's coming to an end very soon. And so Mike Johnson, the lovely speaker who gives me the chills, he unveiled a spending bill that is going to hope to prevent the shutdown. And it looks like there are going to be measures in it that are going to extend funding for certain government agencies into next year. But the catch here is that it is not including money for Israel nor Ukraine. Now, we have to remember that Ukraine aid, a lot of Republicans want it tied to border aid, to basically border security principles. And as I've said, I am actually absolutely, absolutely fine with that. Totally fine with that. But I would argue that the insanity of what some of these Mike Johnson type of Republicans want is that they are going to fight this till the very end. And from my understanding, by tomorrow, maybe even by the time this podcast is out, lawmakers could vote on the plan. And... <laughs> the deadline for passing a measure is, of course, midnight on Friday. So again, 11th hour, Democrats are saying, well, if there's no Ukraine funding, we're not going to vote for this. 
Even some Republicans don't think that this is going to work. Mike Johnson is doubling down. Reuters wrote here, Reuters wrote, Reuters writes here in quotes, the measure employs an unorthodox structure that would provide funding for some segments of the federal government until January 19th and for other agencies until February 2nd. It continues, the Republican-controlled House and Democratic-led Senate have until Friday to enact temporary funding legislation, commonly known as continuing resolutions, to keep federal agencies open after current funding expires. (sighs) I mean, (sighs) this two-step structure that we're talking about right now, I don't particularly think it's going to work. It's something new, so I guess new is sometimes good. In this case, probably not, but it has been adopted by Johnson, and this is the Republican hardliners who basically oppose these straightforward measures in the past, and in a sense, in a perfect world, if we had sane parties, I could kind of understand it. The idea that you don't want to sneak in funding for X when you're talking about a bill for Y, and that does happen. But in this case, our government's not even working, so you kind of do have to have these expansive bills passed, or nothing's going to get passed. And then again, what, in January and February, we're going to have to come back to the table once again? Or or now twice, potentially? I mean, I don't know what—I mean, mean, based on the longevity of speakers, I mean, Mike Johnson might be gone by then. But anyways, this again, in my opinion, just leaves our country in not only chaos— But it leaves everything from national security to just comprehensive benefits like SNAP programs, FDA regulations, or I guess inspections. It leaves all of this at risk once again. And again, this is just not serious. Like, this is not serious or long term. Like, I understand if you're on a more libertarian, freedom caucus, Tea Party side where you want to at least do an audit of government spending every year. For fuck's sake, we've had, what, three of these in the last, like, five months? It stops us from doing serious things. And Reuters also notes that over the weekend, some Republican lawmakers have even expressed concern that this complex dual-part CR could make it harder to reach agreement with Democrats and increase the risk of a shutdown. See, that's the thing here is Mike Johnson's one of these pseudo-intellectuals. Again, he, from everything I've read, he was one of the soft voices that intellectualized trying to overturn some of the election results in 2020. Like, this is a guy who is really smart, and he's good at intellectualizing crazy views. And again, like, this is kind of crazy, having two different periods where they then go back to the table to agree on more funding. (sighs) It's irritating. It's, it's very irritating. And, you know, I mean, I guess I can't really complain here too much because this is what the Republicans get. The, the fatigue kicked in. They voted against Jim Jordan, kept him out. But now they have this guy who is trying to do pseudo-intellectual maneuvers that maybe will pease the hardliners, but maybe it hurts them in 2024. I guess I would hope that. And then again, he's pretty much like holding Israeli aid and Ukrainian aid hostage to these kind of insane, just dual-faceted, multi-step structures with CRs that could take months and just bring us back to the table in, again, 40 days. But kicking, kicking the can down the road is pretty much 
how I would summarize our legislative process at this point, at least on a national level. Now, this next thing going on in Congress, I'm kind of torn on because I agree with it in theory, and I guess more in principle as well, but I wonder why this is what they're doing with their time. Let me explain. So there was a Republican proposal last Wednesday, and it actually passed, and basically it's a propo- it was a proposal to ban the words of Latinx, Latinx, Latinje, as I like to say, ban it on federal paperwork. And it passed on Wednesday night with the support from several House Democrats. This is something I do like in theory, because I feel like, and without getting too far into the culture war stuff, I feel like we are, you know, obviously going through somewhat of a gender revolution. I'm going to stay kind of neutral on that for this episode. I think there's good and bad to it. I think that if you're a non-binary person, you should be welcomed and be able to do what you want in this country. That being said, Spanish, for example, is a gendered language. They use O and A, Latina, Latino. And over the last like decade, there's been a push to use X instead of O or A, Latin X or Latinx. And it's an idea of trying to get gender out of language. The problem here is that it makes language actually kind of difficult. As someone who speaks Spanish, I can't actually imagine speaking Spanish using the X instead of the O and the A. That aside, I talk to a lot of Spanish speakers. A lot of my friends are, are Latinos, Latinas, and all of them think it's stupid. Most studies show from The Guardian to The Atlantic to The New York Times to Gallup that Latinos generally do not support this, and they think it's stupid because it's getting in the way of actual policy, actual, ac- actual action to help people. And a lot of people just feel like this is kind of a white liberal attempt at virtue signaling, and I would agree with that. And so, of course, we have to remember, too, though, The Republicans are the ones that are trying to pass this in the House. This is them virtue signaling to their base as well, because their base is obviously anti-trans, anti-gay, so this falls right in line. And so again, this is an issue of bad actors. I mean, the people that want Latinx on the left, I think, are just like middle-aged white liberals that want a virtue signal. But now you also have, I think, Republicans that are like, well, we're going to ban anything related to non-binary rhetoric, blah, blah, blah. And I've, I've talked to people on the left, and they're always like, leave this up to the community. But studies time and time again have shown that the community that actually speaks Spanish doesn't really give a shit about this. So anyways, Representative Maria Salazar, she's a, rep- she's a Republican from Florida, pretty sensible for a, a Florida Republican, I guess you could say. She's the one that offered this as an amendment to one of the House GOP's 12 annual appropriations bills. And it wound up passing on Wednesday with 222 votes to 198 no votes. Now, the interesting thing to me, though, on this is that four members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, Democrats, actually voted in favor of this as well. You had Henry Cuellar from Texas, Yarira Caraveo from Colorado, and Vicente Gonzalez from Texas. And... Again, I mean, this just kind of tells me that there are Democrats that are Latinos and Latinas in 
probably purple parts of the country, Latino parts of the country, and they don't see this as a win. So that aside, I think this is actually interesting and probably good. Where I kind of roll my eyes and shake my head is that inflation's still high. We have a war in Israel. Student loans are in chaos. Credit card debt's an all-time high. Medical costs are rising. Housing's becoming unaffordable for most people. I can, the list can go on. But this is what they're doing is they're banning verbiage, right? I'm sorry, but that's just, I think there are better ways to spend your time. I guess this is better than Marjorie Taylor Greene trying to make it so Biden administration people like Lloyd Austin only make a dollar a year. Yes, that was a proposal that Marjorie Taylor Greene had in September, making it so Biden administration officials only make a dollar a year. Funny how they didn't do this during the Trump administration. But anyways, Congress is not serious. I will say, and I'm not a Democrat, the Democrats are definitely more serious right now. And it always kills me when I say that because I don't want to be a cheerleader for the Democrats, but I just watch action and banning the term Latinx, trying to make Joe Biden's salary $1 and investigating Hunter Biden on basically charges that I've seen no proof and the Stop Woke Act and all this other stuff. Like the Republicans are not just serious. They are delusional in my opinion. And that's why I was watching an interview with Nancy Pelosi yesterday. I forget if it was, no, it wasn't David Pakman. Yeah, it was one of those types. It wasn't Kyle Kalinske either. It was one of those types of people. I was watching it while I was cooking. And she's like, she's like, this is going to piss off my progressive colleagues and friends. But she's like, we need a healthy Republican Party. And they asked her about why Kevin McCarthy, for example, had lost. And she said one of the best things I've heard all day. She's like, well, I had small majorities. She's like, but I learned how to count. If you don't have the votes, don't hold the vote. And then, yeah, the Republicans, that they're just on a whole different, whole different vibe right now. So, yeah, we'll move on, though. So I want to talk about genocide. Not the happiest term on the planet. But it's a term that's been thrown around a lot. Israel and Israeli backers or Israelis have called Hamas a genocidal organization, which I somewhat agree with. Western protesters, Arab protesters have called Israel's actions as nothing less than genocidal. That was echoed by the Palestinian envoy to the UN, the leader Riyad Mansour. And what I want to talk about is why I don't think what Israel is doing is genocide, but also why I think the terms that we're using are just pointless. Because, for example, what happened in Darfur about a decade ago was not considered a genocide, but Rwanda was. And the UN set up terms to define what a genocide is, and then you take legal actions going forward. But... Sometimes there's bad actions that are not considered genocides. And that's why I'm kind of morally torn right now, because I do think the indiscriminate bombing of hospitals and children in Gaza is bad. But I also think that Israel is unfortunately responding correctly and is not doing genocide because they're not trying to wipe out a people. They are unfortunately accepting civilian casualties for a wide campaign against a terror organization. So just to give some context to this, 
Iran and Iraq obviously have accused Israel of genocide. It's obviously clear for political reasons why this would happen. But interestingly enough, you've had countries like Colombia, Honduras, South Africa that have been usually friendly to Israel. They are calling it genocide too and withdrawing their ambassadors from Israel. You have Craig Mokheber, director of the New York office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. He wrote on October 28th, this is a textbook case of genocide. And I think genocide is a word that's easily thrown around. But much like calling someone you disagree with racist or calling any regime you disagree with fascist, sometimes you have to be careful how you use it. This is not one of those cases. <laughs> the reason I say it's not one of those cases is because I think the UN's definition of it is somewhat outdated. And this is something I'm try- I'm, I kind of go back and forth with and really grapple with. And so giving some background, though, on December... 1948, I didn't write down the date, apologies, but on, in December of 1948, in the aftermath of the Second World War, the UN adopted something called the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. And the convention defines genocide as, in quotes, acts intended to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, ethnical, racial, or religious group. The UN also says that not only killing counts. And that's something I think important to note is that this is not just killing. I think that would go under the ground of war crimes if you're just killing civilians or whatnot. Basically, if you're trying to wipe out an ethnic, national, or religious group, just trying to get rid of them with any means necessary, that's when it becomes genocide. Going further, it also writes here in quotes, This involves deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction. Does too, as does inflicting serious bodily or mental harm, measures intended to prevent births and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, I would argue, and this could be controversial, some maybe wouldn't agree, but I do think that's what's happening in Ukraine. Because, I mean, what Putin is doing is transferring children of the group to another group. They are bombing civilian centers intended to prevent deaths, etc. But this is where it gets complicated because I think the interpretations of this are quite complicated. And this broad term has been interpreted by different people in different ways. So I I think the question is which atrocities constitute genocide? For example, the murder of Jews, obviously during the Holocaust, was genocide. Also, you had the organized slaughter of like 500,000 ethnic Tutsis by Hutu militias in Rwanda in 94. That too was considered a genocide. I think in both cases, it's pretty clear that there was an intention to destroy a people, right? Intent, I guess if you had to go back and think about it, intent is probably one of the reasons why one would argue it's genocide instead of something else. Moving on, though, it gets more complicated because I've always considered Darfur to be a genocide, right? About 300,000 people killed in the years after the fighting broke out. America called it genocide, but apparently, according to The Economist, in quotes, in 2005, a UN commission concluded that Sudan's government had not pursued a policy of genocide. But then it did say some individuals acted with genocidal intent. 
gets complicated, right? Then you also have the Trump administration, I think rightfully so, basically calling out the Chinese government's treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and they called it a genocide. Others disagreed. I don't know if if they're gauging this of like how many points have to be checked of the criteria for it to be a genocide or not, because the Uyghur thing, like it is clear that forced sterilization appears to be happening from the reports I've read. They're also putting these people in camps where they're trying to re-educate them into Han culture. It gets tough. And getting this now to kind of the current Israel-Hamas conflict, I do think it's clear that Hamas, by the UN definition, is genocidal. In 1988, its founding charter literally states that it commits to obliterating Israel. It says in quotes, the day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight Jews and kill them. That's Article 7. Now, I will say this, and not a lot of people on my side of this argument say this, Hamas has come out and at times said that is not the case. They kind of go back and forth. Sometimes you have different spokespeople come out and try to question whether that's actually their intention But I think at the end of the day, we are seeing that this is an organization that does want Jews and Israelis gone from that part of the world. And I think that is, sorry, knock the table. I think that is, in a sense, what you would call genocide. Now, the thing that gets complicated, and I'm sure you guys have seen this all over social media, is whether the indiscriminate bombing on hospitals and refugee camps in Gaza could be considered genocide. Or one of the ministers in Israel saying that a nuclear bomb could be an option. That guy was fired, by the way. My intention is that, or my understanding, I think is a better way to put it, is that Israel doesn't really want to destroy the Palestinian people. It wants to destroy Hamas, a terror group, a militant group with foundings in the Muslim Brotherhood. And unfortunately, especially the Netanyahu government, is prepared to kill civilians to do so. And of course, like I said, there are Israeli extremists that want to eradicate Palestinians, but that is not the current policy of the government. And of course, people, some people could push back and say, Alex, that's just insane. But You don't see the same rhetoric on a national scale as you do with what Hamas is doing in there. Now, I don't like the demonization of all Palestinians, and I'm seeing that more and more frequently in Western media. So it is annoying. It is annoying. But genocide, I think, is is confusing. And then it also gets more confusing because, as The Economist notes in an article I was reading today, It writes, the Israelis have clearly inflicted serious bodily harm or mental harm as one of the UN, you know, um, guidelines for genocide on the Palestinians. The The article continues, they also have displaced people from the north of the Strip. If these people are not allowed to return, this could be considered a partial destruction of their territory. Or as Jean Egeland, a former head of UN humanitarian efforts, has warned, a forcible population transfer. So my, my thought on this is that maybe we don't need to use genocide or war crimes as a way to just know what our eyes are telling us is not right. 
and I think that's true on both sides of this, is that I don't think you need a term to identify that people are suffering. And I think genocide is an easy way to just basically dichotomize the situation and say, well, the Israelis are committing genocide, so we can't support any of their cause. Or you say Hamas is committing genocide, so all Palestinians are part of that. Like, you can't split off everything into a binary circumstance. And I think that's what, unfortunately, like something like genocide does. The UN, by the way, concluded in its report about Darfur, remember, Darfur was not a genocide, according to the UN, it wrote, crimes against humanity and, and war crimes that have been committed may be no less serious and heinous than genocide. And I think that's a good point, is just because the term genocide isn't used doesn't mean something bad isn't happening. And I think we need to be better at defining what is happening instead of just using terms. And I would argue maybe we need more regulations and more descriptive terms on what is happening now. But either way, I do, I do vehemently believe that Israel is not trying to eradicate Palestinians. It is trying to create a safer place for its own people, and it's calculating that civilians are going to be killed. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that is different than literally Article 7 of Hamas's charter saying that they will not have judgment until the Muslims kill all the Jews. That is different. But maybe we need new terminology for this era because as I've talked about before, we're in a different time and different things are happening. And sometimes older terms just aren't good at describing those things. So yeah, we will keep following it. But I, I, I just think we need better terminology for what's happening here in a centuries-old crisis. Now, before we're out of here, this actually just broke as I was recording this. Uh, Tim Scott announced, I'm recording this, by the way, early into Monday morning. That's how I, that's how I roll, don't judge, but... Tim Scott is dropping out. The Associated Press writes here, Presidential candidate Tim Scott announced late Sunday that he was dropping out of the 2024 race about two months before the start of voting in Iowa's leadoff caucuses. This is interesting to me because I think in a perfect world, someone with his social values and his neoconservative, well, somewhat changing, but somewhat firm neoconservative values would do well in Iowa. But his calculation is that it's just not happening. And he struggled in the polls. I think it was the Pod Save America bros that actually said something pretty funny. They were joking about how it seemed like Tim Scott took a Xanax before the last debate because he was just slow and taking forever to respond and just not really engaging. And I think that sums up his campaign in a lot of ways. Like, this is a guy that I actually genuinely like. I think he's a very nice guy, and he's good at state politics. He's good at congressional or, I guess, Senate politics in this case. But on the national level, when you're dealing with people like Trump and Rob DeSanctimonious, he just can't keep up. And obviously, he realized that. And interestingly, I also think that this wasn't the time for him. He had a hopeful message while Trump is talking about destruction and chaos and violence and despair. He's also the only black Republican senator, while the party has become a lot more reactionary and nationalist. He just couldn't find a lane. And it was like, 
it was kind of like how Mike Pence dropped out after realizing that they wanted to hang him and there really wasn't a lane for the guy that stood up to Trump. Well, being the hopeful black conservative in this MAGA party, yeah, there's really not much of a lane. It's unfortunate. And he was on Trey Gowdy's, what's it called? Sunday Night in America with Trey Gowdy. It's kind of the name of the Sunday Night Football show in a sense. But anyways, this is Trey Gowdy's version. And Tim Scott said in quotes, I love America more today than I did on May 22nd. But when I go back to Iowa, it will not be as a presidential candidate. I am suspending my campaign. I think the voters who are the most remarkable people on the planet have been really clear that they're telling me not now, Tim. Too bad. I always wanted like a Haley Scott ticket. They claim to hate each other, fought over curtains in the last debate back in October. But anyways, too bad. One of the guys that I thought was more palatable is gone. Nikki Haley, hopefully the Tim Scott voters will go to Nikki Haley. I've read some scenarios where she could at least do well enough in Iowa to maybe get second in New Hampshire. We'll have to see. But anyways, longer episode. Enjoy your Monday. Enjoy your Monday. It's Monday. I mean, all you can do is enjoy it, right? Anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest.